of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. I'm Tom Perumian. KTSA News. All right, we have some delicate matters to discuss. I'm going to warn you right up front. There's probably not, or maybe I'll warn you from behind. I don't know. I, there's probably no. There's probably no easy way to talk about this. Um, but you probably have heard the story by now that a uh, Senate staffer who works for uh, it appears to be a guy that works for Senator Ben Cardin of. Maryland, who's a Democrat, and some news organizations are naming this guy and some are not, but I mean, it's nobody we've ever heard of, so I don't know if that's relevant to our discussion, but anyway, uh, this guy is apparently the guy who made a sex tape in a Senate committee room. It's a gay sex tape. It's it's, It's a tape of two men. Uh, having anal sex. So would this be an insurrection? An insurrection? I, I'm just trying to... You know me, I'm just trying to understand the news. Uh, but it's... A, I mean, everybody knew as soon as this came out on Friday night that it was... Um, they rec- you know People that cover, cover Capitol Hill recognize the room, and it's one of the Senate hearing rooms where they have hearings for like Supreme Court nominees and cabinet nominees and Comey testified there and what have you. And these these two guys were on the dais, basically. So uh, they, we don't know what time of day this thing was made. Um, and there's questions about who can get in that room because, you know, we, we were given to believe right after J6 that, that, all the places where Congress works and meets and congregates are sacred spaces. But then I'm reading about this story over the weekend, and it sounds like people can badge in and out of these rooms and and pretty casually. And obviously, to do this, they must have had a expectation that they would not get caught, right? Or that, that they could get away with it. So, I mean, it it gives the lie to this whole sacred cathedral of democracy crap that we had to hear endlessly about a few years ago um the guy has been fired if it is if if this is the guy he's been fired and he is taking an interesting approach to this he claims that he's being discriminated against because of who he loves this has been a difficult time for me wrote the staffer as i've been attacked for who i love to pursue a political agenda. I love my job and would never disrespect my workplace. Um, Any attempts to characterize my actions otherwise are fabricated, and I will be exploring what legal options are available to me in these matters. As for the accusations regarding Congressman Max Miller, I've never seen the congressman and had no opportunity or cause to yell or confront him. The other piece to this story is that this same dude who was a legislative aide to Ben Cardin, 
ran up to a Jewish member of Congress, Max Miller, and yelled free Palestine at him. Miller tells the story on his social media. This guy says, I didn't do it. I don't even know who he is. Um, it, it's a very interesting and predictable ploy to try to make this about being gay. Now, I can't speak for everyone, but I don't think the problem with this is that it was gay sex. The problem with this is that you were having sex on the table in the Senate committee room. I mean, what are you, freaking George Costanza? We have to break this down for you? It's not okay, all right? If you weren't specifically told not to do that, it's because they presumed you knew not to do that. They didn't think they needed to run through that in the old, uh, you know, first day orientation for Senate aides, right? Like, you'd know not to do that. Like, maybe from other jobs you've had or other offices in which you've worked, other workplaces in which you've spent time. We thought you knew you can't do that. We don't. We frown on that. It's not who you love. It's where you loved them. Okay? That's. Is, I mean, I, I'm sure that that doesn't speak for everyone. But I think that's the general, shall we say, thrust of the problem here. And, of course, you know, all weekend long I fought with and grappled with puns. I mean, is this the worst rear-ending the American people have ever seen in a Senate committee room? No, not even close. I would, I would actually argue that Trump's um, Supreme Court nominees were violated worse than the guy in the video. I, that's, I'm going to say that, so you may or may not agree. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is just bad behavior. This isn't homophobia or uh, hate or what have you. You're not, dude. You're not the victim, okay, of this. Uh, you're not, this isn't, this isn't some sort of symbol of or emblem of the oppression of gay people in the workplace. And I think that's really, I think that's really offensive, frankly, because I'm pretty sure the vast majority of gay people in every workplace uh, would abhor this, don't do it, know it's wrong, would be horrified at the thought that this is somehow typical and um, that's what he's basically saying. Well, you know, I'm just doing what I do. Don, we now are gay apparel. It's not about who you are and who you love. You, you're, you're not supposed to make porn at work, in the workplace. Again, we know that a lot of dirty stuff happens in that room. You didn't have to make it worse, right? Can we agree on that? 210 599 55. They used to say that um, patriotism was the last refuge of a scoundrel. Remember that quote? But now it's victimhood. Now, when you are clearly in the wrong, when your hand is in the proverbial cookie jar, it's still everyone and everything else's fault but you. Right? It's the cookie, and it's the cookie jar, and it's sugar, and it's, you know, I mean, you're not a victim. And if this has been a difficult time for you, or you've had a difficult year, this this guy posts that, then maybe you should have been minding your P's and Q's and not doing this. By the way, um... I mean, if we really, I, I, I don't predict there will be a big investigation of this. 
This has temporarily dislodged Hunter Biden's legal troubles from the front pages, so to speak, but probably only temporarily. But, I mean, I, I somehow I get the feeling, and I could be wrong, and I hope I am, but I, somehow I get the feeling that this will be uh, treated like it wasn't worth, it's not worth uh, investigating, or since the guy's already been been uh, terminated, you know, we're going to let it go or slap on the wrist. But if you really wanted to delve into this, I think you would say that um, it it kind of makes you wonder, like, who who are these people that are recruited into, drawn into, educated, prepared for, this kind of service, because I, I, I don't know if you've noticed, but um, all of a sudden, people are waking up to the fact that the people in charge or the people in authority or the people that are sort of staffing up the federal government um, appear to be a lot of people that w- wouldn't get hired where any of us work. I mean, I'm thinking when I, when I saw this, I couldn't help but think of like Sam Brinton. Like, who who hires in the private sector? Who the hell would hire Sam Brinton? But he was a deputy undersecretary of energy in this administration. I mean, talk about having issues. Talk about having a bad year. I mean, the good thing about Sam Brinton is everybody's being a lot more careful with their checked luggage now. So we can thank him for that. Anyway, some thoughts on that. Want to know what you think. 210-599-5555. See if you see a pattern here. I don't know. I see a pattern here. A few stories I want to share with you. This one is Dateline, Wheeling, West Virginia. Senator Joe Manchin expressing exasperation in an interview over the weekend about the continually worsening conditions on the southern border. Manchin, Democrat, said the border is broken, and we've got to stop this dangerous immigration that we have coming to our country from all over the world. Numbers we've never seen before. The whole world is in a flux, Manchin said, and they're taking advantage of a system that is truly broken. And this is not immigration reform. They're basically working diligently on just securing the border. It must be done. It must be shut down. We are sold out, Manchin said of the United States. We are over capacity. All right, item number two. This is uh, an interview on Meet the Press with Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Dingell of Michigan. Saying yesterday, Americans want better immigration policy from the Biden administration, calling the border broken. The border's broken. It was broken under Trump as well, she said. We need comprehensive immigration reform. So here's two Democrats saying the border is broken and we need to stop letting people in. And I've got a few more, but I I, I just wonder when... Captain Obvious and his sidekick, uh, when did when did they come to the party? Now, what do you think is going on here? This is exactly what Trump was saying in 2015. This is exactly what you've said every time you've talked about this to anybody in your life the last eight years, ten years. 
what's going on here. These are Democrats. They were shilling for these policies. They were saying that the Biden administration was doing everything it could do. They were saying it's getting better. Now they say it's broken. No more. Stop them. I think they've seen polling numbers. I, I, I don't think they've, they've had a Damascus road to Damascus moment. I think they've seen polling numbers. I think there must be internal polling on this that is terrifying elected officials. And probably not just Democrats. If you, if I'm right, and there is this sort of growing consensus, there'll be a lot of Republicans that will have to get very tough and toughen up their talk and de-rhino themselves very, very fast. So tell me what you think. I think they're having a little bit of uh, poll panic, which is also a pattern in Washington, D.C. this weekend. I'm sorry. I I have so many of them. I'm not even going to get to all of them. Uh, 210-599-5555. And then I saw this story um, from the Daily Mail. It's the trend on TikTok of Gen Zers talking about how they will not fight America's endless wars. They refuse to serve in its military and are bashing it and are decrying the neocon warmongers in both parties that are dragging the world closer to World War III. So it's videos of young people, basically, some of them in the military, by the way, some of them not, saying, um, we can't trust our leaders anymore, Uh, don't join the military, don't get sucked in, Uh, you'll regret it, because it's endless war, it's perpetual war. There's even a guy uh, named Samuel Ronan, who's uh, a veteran and is running for president. He's running as a Republican. And his platform is, we need the draft. Because young people are not going to, the way things are going, you're not going to have a sustainable all-volunteer military. Now, if you if you had an all-volunteer military, which we have had for decades, and it's been, for many, many years, it, it not only met but exceeded all of its quotas. In other words, it worked as an all-volunteer unit. If now the, the target audience is starting to resist the recruitment, is the answer to that to bring in the draft? Or is the answer to that to look at what they are saying? What they are saying is they don't trust our leaders. They don't trust the promises that are made to get people to enlist. And they don't believe that we are trying to stay out of war and we're all about peace and peace is our business. They think war is our business. That's an old argument, by the way. That's that's Ike in 1960. That's the military-industrial complex, the idea that uh, if you just look at it from a profit motive, war will always win out over peace. War makes money. War employs people. War keeps the factories humming. Peace doesn't do any of that. War covers up uh, economic downturns and depressions and recessions. And... Um, 
and it also allows politicians to kind of create that bread and circus thing that we've talked about before where you keep people sort of distracted and and, and sort of amped up and hyped up you know with with a war going on in any society the public is a little more obedient malleable respectful of authority don't change horses in the middle of the stream it's great for incumbent politicians great for many business sectors so do we need a draft because recruitment is struggling or do we need to look at why recruitment is struggling have a holly jolly christmas it's the best time of the year i don't know if there'll be snow but have a cup of cheer have a holly jolly christmas and when you walk down the street Say hello to friends you know And everyone you meet yeah, There's Burl Ives Beautiful song, great song, great voice for Christmas songs, right? Tomorrow night, however, uh, we have our, our annual Worst Christmas Song Show of all time That'll be in our 6 o'clock hour tomorrow It's an annual event, once a year is all anyone can take and um, more on that to come. 210-599-5555 will get you in here right now. Uh, so, yeah, the the Senate porn tape, and what a way to start a week, is not about straight and gay or homophobia or equal rights. It's about disrespect. And by the way, if you want equal rights and you're for equal rights, that means everything is equal. That means expectations are equal. That means standards are equal. And making a sex tape in the Senate committee room, and again, we, I'm, I'm with you on all the jokes. I'm, I'm totally with you. But it's, it's not any more or less wrong based on who the participants are. And the, that's the double standard. He, 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 thinks, he thinks the fact that it's being reported as a double standard, I think some sort of idea that it's a lesser offense or not even an offense because he and the other guy are gay, I think that's, a, I th- I think that's the double standard, if you will. By the way, I, I also thought it was interesting, at least one story I saw, I think it was NBC News, uh, said that their headline was conservative news outlets are alleging that it's what's what's alleged. You can see the tape. You may already have seen it or clips of it. The guy's been fired. He's talking about it. What's alleged? Why is it always new when when some when when liberals do something? The news is the conservatives are talking about it or pouncing on it. And when conservatives do something, well, that's just the news, and we don't have that other reciprocal approach. Shouldn't use reciprocal in this story, I know. 210-599-5555. All right, so the poll question powered by River City Oral Surgery, uh, are we going to see the draft return? And the reason the draft is back in the conversation is because recruitment numbers are down. And there's all these TikToks with Gen Zers going, "Hey, uh, don't don't get in, don't join." 
um, this life is not for you. It's not what they tell you it'll be. Some of them are making the point that um, we have neocon politicians that keep looking for deployments and wars and foreign interventions, which is true, which is, you know, that that's definitely true. Is the answer to declining, I guess you'd say, voluntary enlistment to institute a draft, or is the answer to look at why it's declining? And I think it's door number two. I, I don't think we should just say to the politicians, because you failed so badly at both keeping the promise to people that did enlist and getting more people to enlist, because you're, you're terrible at that, because you're failing at that, we're going to give you the power to just vacuum up all of our sons and daughters. No. Why are you terrible at that? Why are you failing at that? What is, what is failing? And I think we have to have those answers. And I think we have to take a hard look at who, I mean, who we are as a country and what we stand for as a country is connected to whether or not we want to stand for it. If the people of this country don't want to rep its policies abroad, that may not be their fault. That may be their prerogative. And the idea of bringing back the draft is like saying we don't we don't we don't care what your hesitation is or we don't care about your your lack of willingness to serve or whatever. And by the way, I don't think it's all uh, somebody will eventually say in this discussion it always happens, well, young people aren't patriotic. I I don't think that's a good enough answer. I I've seen the polls and there's no there's no question that patriotism is on the wane across many age groups and especially generation Z. But again, I come back to my question, why? I, I think not dealing with the why is going to put you in an impossible situation. Sure, you can bring back the draft. You can force people of a certain age and eligibility into a uniform. But you can't make them what you need them to be just because you got them in the uniform and you got them through basic training. And we saw with Vietnam that if you draft people into a war they don't understand, support, believe in, um, it's very bad for the services themselves. It's not a simple solution. Oh, well, now we got our people. And that, that, that's the story of the Vietnam War. It's the story of the post-Vietnam War military. It's something that and we've had many people talk about this on the show over the years. The military spent probably 20 years detoxing itself from the experience of the Vietnam-era draft, where they were able to achieve the appearance or the numbers, but they weren't able to achieve the force. So anyway, we're going to talk about all that.
KTSA. I don't know about later on having some pumpkin pie, but I do know that uh, one of our favorite mystery authors, uh, R.G. Belsky, will be on the show in our 6 o'clock half hour. Uh, you can join the show right now by uh, calling in 210-599-5555. Uh, you can message me on Facebook. It's Jack Riccardi on Facebook. You can email me, jack at ktsa.com. Cody says, my idea for fixing recruitment, eliminate student loans and enhance the GI Bill. Instead of paying off their loans, make them earn it, writes Cody. Um, Raymond writes, jackktsa.com. I was informed recently by a retired colonel who was in charge of recruitment that there are only about 300,000 people in the country who fit the requirements. Uh, these people can meet the physical and educational requirements. Other than that, the rest of the pool don't meet the minimum requirements. Are we going to see the draft return? Is that the right response to falling recruitment and to the tick, what's called the TikTok mutiny of Gen Zers who are either in the military or not, uh, warning their you know, peers, don't do it. Don't fall for it. Carl is on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Carl, welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Hi. Uh, hi, Jack. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Uh, sir, I'm a, uh, I'm, I'm a retired vet. I served in the U.S. Army uh, for 21 and a half years. And um, I think the if we're going to look at the at this problem from, from just like a black and white perspective there we we're going to miss the point there are several factors that are contributing to this problem that need to be considered um they uh when right before i retired and i haven't been retired for that long um they were changing the rules um and telling us that um we needed to 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 change the way we trained and the way we mold the soldiers into uh, civilians into soldiers for 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 years and years and years because this generation wasn't the same um for example um there they used to tell us that this generation was a lot more prone to injury because they don't go outside and play enough and they don't get the required physical activity they spend all their time playing video games so if you try to make them do a lot of push-ups and a lot of sit-ups and a lot of running their bodies aren't used to it be um like like mm-hmm. previous generations that were mm-hmm. outside all the time right um and 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 um so um the the army allowed uh not the army but the military as a whole allowed politics to get into it in, in inside it, it was supposed to be uh, apolitical right and they allowed politics to get in there and and um i i have a lot of personal friends that have came to me and say you know what um, everywhere else in the country, we're being told that, that because we're certain race, that we're racist. And um, I don't want my kid going in the army and and uh, being told that because he's, mm-hmm. for example, white, that he's a racist. Mm-hmm. Right. And 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 the word has gotten out about the, the whole uh, wokeness in the military. Right. Whether let's let's not argue whether it's true or not, but the perception is there. Right. And it's going to take a lot of hard work. Um, that I don't know that the politicians are willing to put in to fix the problem. Um, oh, I think the, I the do. I don't think problem. they are. I don't think they're willing, Carl. I don't. I don't think they're willing to put in the hard work. They've they've shown us that. Do you think though that if everything you've said it makes makes great sense, but everything you've said means that if you just draft these people, 
you haven't solved the problem. You've just made it look like you solved it. No, and 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 a lot of the kids just think that they're entitled to everything, and it's uh, the the military requires a mentality mentality and an attitude of service, of service, right? Um, and and uh, these these people um, uh, don't understand that it, uh, we need to from from the southern border to the northern border, from the east to the west. This is our country, right? Mm-hmm. And life is a competition. China and Russia and Iran um, compete with us, whether we mm-hmm. want to compete with them or not. A lot of these people right. think that if we just play nice and we don't right. raise right. our voice and we don't and we don't raise our head, that they the other people will play nice. Yeah. And um, we need people in our country that are willing to say, uh, "I'm going to give up a little bit of myself for X amount of years to make sure that." that we can compete and survive right. whether but we Carl, want how do to you get, be nice or not. I, I, I agree with that. But how do you, I mean, in order to get that, you have to start a lot sooner than the moment of recruitment. Like that, what you're describing is is the whole childhood, public education, you know, it's like life up to that point. And if you don't, look at that you can't just fix it when they're 18 to 22 no it it needs to start with a basic appreciation two things first of all every american needs to start looking at at himself or at herself as an american first and foremost Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. second second um every american needs to 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 start um uh thinking less and less about themselves uh and remember what uh john s kennedy said ask not what your country can do for you but what you can do for your country if we don't change our mentality and we don't teach it to our generations then we're not going to have people that are willing to go in the military and do that job that's the key that i mean you, you you i'd like to just put you in charge of all this carl i mean you've inspired me you're 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 right on the money you're a hundred percent right i know people are nodding their heads off in the car listening to you you're absolutely right but we can't have what you're telling us we need if the entire public education system is this is a racist country it was founded on slavery you're a racist you have white privilege you're the problem uh don't uh, try harder or work harder because uh, that's not fair to people that don't or can't or whatever. We're not going to have grades or honor rolls. You, we're trying to figure out why we don't have a generation of Americans who want to do what prior generations have done, yet we've trained them to be different. We've trained them to be exact. What they're saying about military service is exactly what we've taught them about this country they are just parroting it back to us right that what they're saying is not surprising if you're surprised you shouldn't be surprised carl is right on very well said i think 210-599-5555 you can't just say well now that we've spent 18 years telling you this country sucks and it's and it's rigged, and it's it's evil, and it's colonialist. Uh, we're now going to require you to put on its uniform and fight its wars. That's ridiculous. The draft, as it has historically existed, 
was a draft of young American men who needed to be drafted because we were so undermanned on the eve of like World War II. We had made, through political decisions and neglect, we had made no preparations. We had not read the room as far as what was happening in the world. This country, if you look at the numbers in 1939, at the, at the you know, when, when, when the war began in Europe, we didn't get in it in 39, but when, when Hitler rolled into Poland in September of 39, if you look at the numbers, and I don't know them by heart, but I've seen them many times, we had something like 60 airplanes and 80 tanks and 135,000 men in uniform. I mean, we were, we were one of the weakest, smallest militaries in the world. Countries like Italy were running laps around us. And so we had this massive catch up, gear up, staff up, draft, you know, but, but we were drafting people whose upbringing was patriotic, whose, whose assimilation was complete. They may have been immigrants or the children of immigrants or the grandchildren of immigrants, but they loved the country. The draft was merely to impress upon them, hey, we know you had other plans, or you were going to work on your dad's farm or work in your dad's store or whatever, but now we need you right here, right now. And this is not where we are. And a draft is, you know, a military conscription is a tool, but you got to have the right materials or the tool doesn't work. And I don't think we have the right materials. I think we've done that to ourselves. And Carl said it very well. Jack Riccardi show for Monday. Jump in at 210-599-5555 or email me jack at ktsa.com. Here's a Census Bureau item. A quarter of 40-year-olds in the United States have never been married. It's the highest figure since they started collating that particular number in 1900. Think about this. In 1980, only 6% of 40-year-olds had not, never been married. Now, a quarter of 40-year-olds in the United States have never been married. I'm not, I'm not plumping for marriage, but I just think if you don't acknowledge that we've changed people and we've done it intentionally, and systematically and efficiently through everything from public education to popular culture if you don't if you don't admit that then you're coming at this draft argument i think dishonestly like it's very easy to just go yeah bring it back and I, i'm getting a lot of email from people that are like these ingrates need to serve that is not that isn't you're you're missing the, you're missing the entire point you can you can put them in the uniform 
but you won't just make them into people who, as Carl pointed out, can best, can get the better of the enemies we have today. The enemies we have today don't teach their young people to hate their countries. They teach their young people to hate other countries. They teach their people to obey them and hate others. They teach fanaticism. They teach devotion. They're not shy about it. They're not recalcitrant about it. They're not half-hearted about it. So a draft would fill the ranks, but fill them with what? Given what we're doing right now. 210-599-5555. I I, I know we're going to have a lot of arguments about this. I know people are angry. The email is angry. People are angry. And what I'm getting is, I mean, they're angry at me because they think that I'm missing what's a simple solution. We just need to draft these bastards, you know. I, I, I know you can do that. But then what? 210-599-5555. And since pretty recently the all-volunteer approach was working, not like it never worked. It's not like we've been short ever since we discontinued the last Vietnam-era draft. I, I'm, I'm at least curious. I think I might not be the only one. Like, wh- What have we done to screw that up? And why aren't we interested in that? Chris is on the radio, 210-599-5555. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, yes, uh, on the draft part, I mean, it, it, I have friends that have their kids in ROTC, and some of these kids have more ribbons than a four-star general. And it really boggles my mind because you, you're only in school for two years and you have all these ribbons, but yet none of those ribbons really mean nothing to a civilian, but they mean something to them. But yet the ribbons that you earn in the military mean something, and they're heart broke, they're heart felt. They stand for the colors. Uh, back in when I joined the military, I fought for the country. I, I followed my dad's footsteps. I was one of there that I wanted to be better than my father, but I, I wanted to serve my country. These kids, they want a trophy for everything they do, but yet they don't want to, they don't want to die for their country. They want their country to die for them. They want their country to bleed for them because of what they stand for, not what the country mm-hmm. stands for. And once we can turn that around, Mm-hmm. You know, I have a son that's 19. I, I want him to be devoted, but he's not going to go to the military, you know, because, yes, he has a single single kid, single boy, but yet you can still make that sacrifice. You can still honor the country and the code. But yet some of these, these, these people nowadays, they don't want to honor that. They want the country to honor them and give yeah. them something. Yeah, that's, that's well said. That's well said. That freedom. And yeah. once you lose that freedom, we're done. Yeah. Uh, Well said, Chris. Thank you. Appreciate having you today. It's a disaster thriller. It is one of the top trending movies on search engines. It's one of the most watched things on Netflix right now. Came out about a 
I think about three weeks ago, called Leave the World Behind. And here's the trailer for the movie Leave the World Behind. Take a listen to this. I went online this morning and I rented us a beautiful house out by the beach. I figured if I made the reservation and packed our bags, it would eliminate most of the reasons to say no. Kids look so happy. The Wi-Fi isn't working. Get a pad. I'm so sorry to bother you that this is our house. This is your house? We were driving back to the city, then something happened. You want to stay here, but we're staying here. We need to get them out of here. They need to think everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay, isn't it? We are seeing ongoing cyber attacks across the country. Something is happening, and I don't trust them. Everything I know, I have told you. I would do anything to protect my family. What you do is your business. Get in the car right now! Haven't you been picking up on what's going on out there? Whatever it is, it's happening to all of us. I just want to know, what is the truth? All right, so I I decided I need to start using my Netflix subscription for more than just World War II documentaries. So I watched this movie. It's called Leave the World Behind. I'm going to tell you right up front, the executive producers of this movie are Barack and Michelle Obama. And I don't know what that means, like, in the movie business. I don't exactly know what is executive producer kind of like an honorary thing. Are they really involved in the creative? When you watch this movie, and I'm not going to do any spoilers, unless I have to, and if I do, I will warn you in advance. Um, But when you watch this movie, it's got the Obama's fingerprints all over it. So I don't know. Maybe they were involved. Maybe they didn't just lend their their name to it. Um, it's a, it stars uh, Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke. They're a couple. They live in the city. That's her at the beginning telling her husband. He wakes up in the morning and she says, hey, I'm getting this out of here. We're going to take a little vacation. I've rented us a house. And the house is not far from New York City. It's in the, looks like it's maybe in the countryside of either New York or New Jersey. They're not, they, they can see the skyline from where they, where they are. And they go to this beautiful like Airbnb kind of deal. It's a beautiful house. And they've got two kids. They've got like a teenage son and a preteen girl. And it all starts out well. Uh, but not long after they get there, they are having trouble with like cell phone reception and uh, Wi-Fi. And they can't get the TV to work in any way, shape, or form. Nobody can stream or access anything on any of their devices. There's a weird thing that happens at the beach. I won't say it in case you haven't seen the movie yet. Which uh and and as it's as it's ramping up, 
because I love disaster movies. I'm I'm good with it. I mean, it's it's actors are good, everything's good. Then one night while they're in this house that they're staying in temporarily, there's the knock at the door. When they open the door, there's a very well-dressed black man and his daughter. Um who explains to their astonishment that he's the owner of the house. And he's come back. He knows they're renting it, but he's come to it because, and this is where it gets murky, he says something has happened in the city and I can't, we can't go back home to our house in the city. This is like their country home. And uh, we just need to stay here for one night. I'm sure whatever's happening with this power outage or this internet outage will get resolved. And then it turns into a, now these two families are thrown together. And, uh, they are, they're united by not knowing what's going on. And then they start to figure out what's going on. And we don't ever really know. I mean, there's hints that it's a terrorist attack or that it's a civil war in which rogue elements of the U.S. military are attacking the country. And it get, this is where it gets very Obama-esque because um, whatever it is, it's our fault and we've brought it on ourselves. The characters in the movie even say that. We, whatever this is, this is our, this is America's fault. And then the one guy in the movie who's ready, who, she like Julia Roberts early on, before anything is anything, she's at a supermarket and she sees him buying cases of water. And he's played by Kevin Bacon, okay? He's, he's the one guy who's ready. He's a prepper. And he is the kookiest, craziest, most selfish person you could imagine because of course anybody who's actually like self-sufficient and ready for something is a terrible person right so the sympathetic figures are the liberals that don't have anything ready and are at, at the mercy of events and think that the whatever is happening to the country the country made it happen brought it on and this guy who's ready he's just a terrible person he's a maniac um, so I'm watching this movie and I'm sticking with it because I'm one of those people who once you get X percentage into a movie, you're like, might as well see where, you know, might as well see how it ends. I'm not going to spoil it. Don't worry. So there's like layers of suspense. What's happening out in the world? We don't know what's happening in the house. Did the guy that came back, was he honest with? Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke and their family, or is he is he not telling them the truth? Does he maybe maybe know something about what's happening, or has he got his own agenda? There's intrigue involving the interaction between the two families, and I, again, I'm not going to you know go into it. There's a lot of very uh, dramatic camera angles, and the special effects are great. Planes are falling out of the sky, and if you like disaster movies, it's got all the stuff you would want in disaster movies. Do you remember there was a Netflix movie a few years ago called Bird Box? And if you saw Bird Box, you've seen about 80% of what's in Leave the World Behind. I mean, instead of birds, it's deer. 
but it's the same thing. The deer know, the animals know. That's, a, that's another big liberal trope, right, is that the nature knows, the animals know, humans are the dumbest things on earth, and nature knows what's going on. So anyway, all this is happening, and I'm dealing with it, and I'm like, all right, this is a movie. You're being entertained, and you're, you're, as you're watching it, you're, yes, there's all kinds of little propaganda touches and agenda items. Then, and this is what's made it controversial, I think this is actually why it's trending. I mean, it has big stars in it, and it's a Netflix movie, but I think this might be why it's trending. And if you've seen it, you'll know what I'm about to say. The movie just ends. I won't say anything. I won't tell you how, in case you want to see it. And if you have seen it, tell me you know what I'm talking about here, right? It just ends. Like they just lost interest or the printer ran out of paper or the script writers. Or I, it's the most unsatisfying. It might be the most unsatisfying ending to anything I have ever seen. <laughs> of course, ask the people I've dated. <laughs> but I mean, seriously, it, it, it has no resolution. None of your questions are answered. It's not the ending that the book on which the movie is based has. It's nothing. You get nothing. The movie just ends with kind of a quirky scene. Um, But what I thought was interesting was the part about, is is this what a civil war, is this what an America that has come to such deep divisions that they can't be healed, is this what would happen? Is this how it would look? Is this how we would look? And I find it very interesting that the Obamas, of all the things they could have put their names on or gotten involved with, I find it very interesting that this is their... I think this is their first thing for Netflix, or one of them. They have like a big multi-year developmental deal. And I remember when I heard that, I thought it was just some sort of, you know, kind of a sweetheart thing or, a, you know, you you, you were kind of like... Um, giving them a bunch of money to borrow their prestige in liberal circles with net for Netflix. But I don't know, maybe they had something to do with this because it really is his, it's got his shtick, you know, the whole America, you're a very disappointing country and you're very disappointing people. And now look what you've done (laughs) kind of thing. Um, Like there's no sense that who are these people attacking us or we're under it. It's like, Oh, We've broken ourselves. We've broken our country. We're so bad. There's a lot of racism and reverse racism. And the the daughter of the of the African American homeowner tells her, uh, you know, her dad, you shouldn't trust them because they're white. And, I mean, it's it's got it all. It checks all the boxes uh, for the libs. Uh, it's called Leave the World Behind. Now, if you have seen it, tell me what you thought. Merry Christmas, baby. You should treat me nice. All right, tomorrow on our show is our worst Christmas song show of all time. That'll be in our 6 o'clock hour tomorrow. Yes. Um, And that'll seem like nothing compared to watching Leave the World Behind. Uh, Anyway, um, or maybe you'll want to leave the world behind after you hear that song. I don't know. 210-599-5555. Here's a movie on Netflix produced by the Obamas 
with no good people in it. There's no good guy in this movie. There's no one, there's no hero, there's no act of bravery, selflessness. These are all just broken, flawed, sad, miserable people. Great actors, and it's it's an entertaining movie. But, boy, they are really sending a message, I think, uh, with this one. So 210-599-5555. Brent is on the radio. Brent, good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call, Jack. Uh, I've seen the movie four times. What I, wow. What I found uh, interesting is that when the African-American gentleman and his daughter show up to the door, Julia Roberts asks him, how do you know this your house? Do you have an ID? He couldn't produce an ID. Right. So, therefore, African-Americans don't have IDs. Well, when the yeah, Tesla's that's, what the Demo- running- that's what the Democrats always tell us, right? They can't, uh, they can't yeah, do photo ID. But, but, yeah, you don't but need I a thought, photo didn't ID. You think, didn't you think they were trying to, over and over again, they were trying to create the, the impression that, that Julia Roberts is a racist, that the reason she doesn't trust these people doesn't believe it's really their house and doesn't want them in the house is because they're black. And that's correct. And that's why all the Teslas that were crashing into it, they were all white. Did well, you notice I didn't, that? I, I don't know if that, I don't, <laughs> that I might be, that, that I, might be. I, I, I will say, I I, yeah, they are all white. I thought the Tesla scene, <laughs> let me explain what Brent is talking about. There's a scene where they're trying to drive away uh, and get back to the city, and they run into a traffic jam that turns out to be a bunch of driverless Teslas that are hurtling down the road, crashing into each other. And I think that's an attack on Elon Musk, Brent. I think that's that's like no, telling I, people, "Hey, you don't want his cars; they're dangerous. They'll kill you." You know, th- they could have been any electric cars, or they could have been all electric cars, but they were only only Teslas. But if you look at all the Teslas, there's mm-hmm. there's a row of ten mm. to a piece going. Right. There's there's fifteen to twenty white Teslas. Right. right. And okay. Then well, you, you may be right. Works. That may be the color. May be the the story. I I took it a little differently, but you may be right. Can I ask you why did you watch it four times? Because I was confused the first two times, oh, and okay. then once I found out that it was uh, produced by the Obamas, I had to watch it the the third and the fourth time and the ending of it was don't give it away now uh, i'm i'm not going to give it away okay the 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 dvd that the girl put into there that's a show that has never shown a black person on that and if you ever watched that show there's never been an african-american on that show i think that that was that ran for decades but did so you, did, again, why, without giving the ending away, and I guess you and I took different things away I'm not giving the ending away. But, and, but let me just, and okay, can, Brent, don't get mad at me, this. Brent. I'm just trying to talk, Brent, babe, I'm just trying to talk to you. Calm down. No. I'm just trying to ask I you a question. Want to let everybody, I just want everybody to know that Hillary Clinton does not have hot sauce in her purse. And I, I, I'll end okay. it that way. Okay. All right, Brent. Thank you. Thanks for wasting our time. Um, no, I, what I was going to say was it, I've yet to meet anyone or talk to anyone about this movie who didn't, like usually when you s- express an opinion about a movie or uh, or a part of a movie, like I didn't like this or I didn't like the beginning or I didn't like the end or I didn't like this character, you know, there's difference. Everyone agrees that ending does nothing for us. 
that's not that's not an ending. Now, interestingly enough, I was reading an article today because I wanted to see what different people were saying. The author of the book says he likes the ending of the movie, even though that's not how he ended the book. He thinks the ending of the movie is kind of uh, whimsical. And again, we won't give away what it is in case you want to watch it. David has watched it. Hi, David. Hey, how's it going? Hey, David. So so I watched that movie, and uh, I kept asking myself, like, what? I couldn't understand it. You know, it was, like, really weird. And then I watched it again. It's like the very first scene is where where Ian Hunt wakes up, and there's a six on his cup, there's a six on the clock, and then there's a six on the other clock. So there's like this six, six, six in the, in, the, in the scene, right? And then throughout the movie, the head hurts the, the white dad, right? So he's like a completely worthless person. He even yes, says he himself, is. Yes, he is. You know? And but that's that's how that's how that's how men are portrayed in modern culture, right? Men, yeah. men are useless. Yeah, men have no thing. skills, right? Yeah. Right. And the, the, she, the wife has all the strength. She's girl. driving the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, and then of course Julia Roberts like a Karen, and the little girl's the most perceptive person in the movie. Yes. You know? I, I I really liked that character. I liked the daughter because I thought she was. First of all, I sympathized with her because she she says at one point, "No one ever listens to me." But also, and she gets no hope. Right, right. Yeah. But I thought you're. I you think know. you're right. I think when she wrote, she at one point she kind of disappears, and they don't even know she's missing at first. I thought that was very perceptive. Like she went off and found her own solution. Right. Yeah, she's the one that yeah. found like where she's gonna be safe. You know, it's yes. really, really strange. And I think there's a lot of subliminal little messages in there. I agree. I haven't even yeah. picked up on all of them yet. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you about yeah. that. There are a lot of, there's a lot of, I guess there's a lot of like agenda to this movie. And, and I'm not, David, thank you for the call. I'm not really recommending it one way or the other. I mean, if you watch a lot of movies and you have Netflix, you should check it out. But I'm not, it's not like, oh, you got to see this. I highly recommend because it's, it's, it's kind of work, you know, like it's entertaining. The special effects are amazing. The acting is good. Actors in it are good. Um, but then as you pick up on all the, like David said, all the kind of themes and agenda items, um, you kind of feel like you're working your way through it or, or whatever. And, um, there's no doubt whether the Obamas did it or not, whoever was the creative force here, wanted to send the message that this country is heading toward a a kind of civil war and we will deserve it and we will have brought it on ourselves. And yet it's interesting because as much as people on the left always tout government as the solution to everything, never in this movie does the government appear at all. Like there is no word from the government. There is no help from the government. The Kevin Bacon character even says we're not, we're clearly on our own. We've been abandoned. Of course, he would say that because he's like us. He's a conservative. But, but I mean, even the libs who are everyone else in the movie, they don't get anything for all that faith in the federal government. There's, there's no, like we never do find out if they're responding, getting their arms around this thing. It's really weird. Um, and and I can see why people are talking about it and it's trending. And if you've seen it, 
As long as you won't give anything away, I'd love to talk, uh, and we will. There is, I think right now in this country, a kind of civil war fantasy, or two of them actually. There's like a lefty one and a righty one. So the righty one is, I think, if I may characterize it, it's the idea that, um, you know, the, the sort of Texas secede and the red states need to just go their own way and uh, have, you know, their, their First and Second Amendment rights and what have you. The, the leftist civil war fantasy is a little more elaborate. It's a little more far-fetched. And in this one, there are two kinds of American people. There's like good, woke, green, blue state living, you know, get all their shots Americans. And then there's mega, bad, scary, they want Trump as their you know, dictator. Um, and so they have to have like, they, they, they're involved in a fantasy about themselves. They've got a version of themselves that's fantasy. And they've got a version of you and me that's fantasy. Whereas I think on the right, the Civil War scenario is more like, hey, we're just so divided, we can't, the country can't hang together, and it's two countries already, and it's eventually, it's just going to have to be two countries. By the way, I don't believe in either of these or any of these. I'm not a subscriber to any of these. I'm, if that bothers you, I'm sorry. You, that, that, this is this is who I am. This is what I think. But I don't believe in any of them. I do think this movie reflects that leftist civil war fantasy. This movie, Leave the World Behind on Netflix. The idea that... Um, the, the, the MAGA people aren't just going to get Trump elected. They're going to get the country wrecked, destroyed, you know. And, and by the way, some people may just be saying that. Don't discount that some people really believe that, that they've been told that. They've in, in, sort of internalized that. Um, and, you know, every bad thing, the climate, the weather, the inflation, the, you know, it, it's the fault of these Trump people, these MAGA people. So the movie never does tell us what happened, but the people in the movie guess that it was probably the outbreak of a civil war. Uh, 210-599-5555. And, um, the the thing that's so interesting to me as I was thinking about the movie afterwards, and it's definitely a movie you'll think about after you watch it, is that even though it was made by lefties and it's a it's got a Obama esque, you know, message, it it really isn't it isn't very good advertisement for them. I mean, they're not the like like the caller said, the dad played by Ethan Hawke is completely useless. The mom, Julia Roberts, is is 
full of misery and self-loathing, and she gives this whole speech at one point about how she hates how she is and she hates what she's become. And it's a, there's a whole anti-capitalism <laughs> sermon that she gives about how all of life is just people trying to f each other over for money, you know. And um, the kids are, you know, kind of unhappy. And then there's the 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 African American guy and his daughter come along, and and they're 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 portrayed as nice, but they're not treated very nicely by the white family. I mean, I guess what it says to me, and I I know they don't want to hear this, but I'm going to say it, and I've said it before. People on the left are often very, very unhappy. You know, even when they're getting their way or they're winning elections or, you know, the, the, the court decision goes their way or the legislation goes their way, man, there's, there's a kind of bottomless um, misery and dissatisfaction. And I, I think part of it might be that there's no there there. Like, there, there's no... If they got everything they wanted, I don't know what they'd have. And I will say, when I talk to people who think and feel the way I do, we may never get all the things we aspire for in this country, but we believe that if we did get them, it would that rising tide would lift all boats, like everything would be better. And everyone would be better. Conservatives believe that if they got their way, even the lives of people that fought them in every turn and 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 opposed everything would be would be in a better place. Their their children would get a better education. Their streets would be safer. Their their taxes would be lower. Their community would be freer. But on the left, I don't think they'd be happy even if they got everything they wanted. And when you see this movie, you're, you're watching people that are deeply, deeply unhappy. Before the stuff even happens, you know. Um, but yeah, I think there's that kind of, underlying it is that kind of, are we headed for a civil war kind of thing. And it's interesting that now both left and right have, fantasy versions of that that used to be a thing that only people on the right said that oh well you know we're gonna red and blue america you know i heard that for years it's interesting that now they've got their version of it over in uh over on the left uh paul is on the radio on ktsa we're talking about a netflix movie called leave the world behind hi paul yes sir i I tell you i i went into this thing blind um I was just checking movies. My niece was uh, at the house, and we started to watch that. And at the end of it, my niece, who's not even political or anything, said, you know, they said something about, um, 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 what's his name? Not Biden, Biden, but uh, Obama. uh, Obama. Obama being behind this movie. Yeah, they were the executive producers. Yeah. Right. Honestly. The first 70% of the movie, to me, was trying to figure out who the good guy was and who the bad guy was. You know, right. think right. about it. I had no, no thoughts about any political or right. anything about it. But 
now that I think about it and listening to y'all, I'm of the age where Khrushchev said that they were going to take us without firing a shot. Mm -hmm. And so, but here's where I'm confused by all this. Are we talking about our enemies? Are we talking about when you say a civil war, are we talking about someone internally was doing this? Well, that's what they don't, that's what they leave open because remember when, um, Remember the scene where the leaflets are falling out of the sky, the red right. leaflets? Right. And they're right. written in right. Arabic, right? And they say, right. death to America. Right. But then when when Ethan Hawke shows that to Kevin Bacon, Kevin Bacon says, well, I hear on the West Coast they're dropping leaflets that are in Chinese. And so you're, right. you're left with the idea that maybe... Maybe the leaflets are like misdirection, like that's it looks like an external attack, but it's really not. Right, right, right. But then the leaflets don't explain what they want you to do. Like, right. Um, you know, so that's confusing. Also. And one of the characters says, why would they send us leaflets in a language none of us can read? If they were, right. if they were trying to, you know, propagandize this, they'd want us to be able to read it. Right, right. Well, well. Here's a question that I have. Do you? Well, lately, of course, I don't feel like we we even have a defense for anything like anything. I mean, uh, I have such little faith in the government, the mm-hmm. uh, uh, our defense department, the whole thing. I think we're all on the hook. We're all a bunch of damn crooks. I have no, no, no faith that 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 we're doing our job and I've got all the faith in the world in those Chinese and those Russians and those, because they've got a bone to pick with us and they keep an eye on what's happening where we don't mm. keep an eye. We've got sex mm. in the damn Capitol right. building. And, <laughs> right. I right. mean, who, 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 if I had to pick a side, if there was a civil yeah. war, I'd be yeah. speaking Russian, probably. Well, uh, you're, I agree with you. I mean, I, I worry that we're up against people that are dedicated and focused. I mean, their leaders are evil. Their their ideology is evil, but they're committed. And we, who have such a great country to defend and such great ideals to defend, seem to be doing everything but. And we seem to be, our leaders seem to be turning us against each other instead of pulling us together against these threats. So maybe if it ever happened, Paul, it, it, maybe it really would be hard to tell for, for, for you know, at first, if the country was under attack, maybe it really would be hard to tell if it was attack from within or attack uh, from without. I, I wondered that, too, after I, after I watched this. It's a great question. Thank you. Um, and that's, that's the thing about that. That's what makes this movie kind of a, a good thought exercise. If you go in kind of, prepared for it to be very, um, you know, tainted. and it's, it's the same thing like when you watch something on MSNBC, you go in knowing you can do it, you, you'll be fine, it's not going to hurt you, but you know what you're getting going in. Well, you got to know when you go into this movie, it's Netflix, it's executive producer, the Obamas, it's, um, it's, got, a, it's got a very strong agenda taste to it, but... Um, Paul's question is a good one. Um, will we do ourselves in because we are pitted against each other 
will we be done in by an external threat that we're not mindful of or serious about? Um, will, will our enemies just stand back? I mean, remember, they used to say that, too. They really don't have to attack us. The rate we're going, the rate our leaders are going, uh, why attack the United States and get, a, and get maybe a, a black eye or a, a bloody nose when the United States is attacking its own people, its own cultures, its own institutions, and, and, and eroding itself faster than an enemy probably could? I mean, maybe that's what they're doing, right? I don't know who the leaflets will be from, when and if the leaflets come. Anyway. Frosted window panes, candles gleaming inside, painted candy canes on the tree. Santa's on his way, he's filled his sleigh with things. Mm. Feel a little underdressed when we play this. Should be in should be in evening attire. By the way, this movie we were talking about real quick, I thought it was interesting. The actor who plays the owner of the house, who comes back to uh, get involved with Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke's uh, family, he's an actor named Mahar. I think it's um, Maharatha Ali. But anyway, he was. Originally, he played a part that was originally going to be played by Denzel Washington. And from what I read, I read a, a blog about it. They said that they realized that Denzel Washington is viewed by people as such a good guy, you know, his history of movie roles, that they were afraid that people watching it would just assume that his character is a good guy, is a trustworthy person. That's because people admire and like Denzel Washington and they needed you to be off balance with this act with this character you you're supposed to watch the movie not knowing like the last guy said do I trust this person or not should they trust him or not is he telling them the truth or not and so they they had to put somebody in there that that was largely unknown and and everybody does a good job I will say that in this movie leave the world behind so it's great to have uh, our next guest back on the show because he's joined us for so many of the novels that he has published and successfully. Uh, R.G. Belsky is a former editor at uh, the New York Post, New York Daily News, NBC News, among others, and has become a very successful mystery novelist. His new book in the series based on Claire Carlson, main character, uh, is called Broadcast Blues, and he's on our KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker line right now. R.G. Belsky, great to have you back. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, all that good stuff. Hey, Jack. Uh, happy holidays to you. And, and uh, yeah, always good, always good talking to you. Uh, number one, because I like being on the show, but also it means I have a new book out whenever I talk to <laughs> That's you. That's right. So, yeah, it's all good. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a question first, though, before we get into the book, because I've been meaning to ask you this in our previous encounters. When sure. I mentioned your time at the New York Post and the New York Daily News, uh, those are often referred to as tabloids. Is that a pejorative expression, or is that like the appropriate category to refer to them? Uh, you know, I, I take it as a good thing, as a pride. I mean, sometimes people will say it in a derogatory way. You know, like comparing it to, say, the New York Times. Uh, we, to to um, to those of us in 
you know, the glory days of the tabloids uh, was when Rupert Murdoch first bought it uh, in the late 70s or early 80s. And uh, we sold like a million copies a day. And I was, you know, I was able to be a part of all that. And we were a tabloid. We we told news yeah. fast. We told it quick. And, uh, you know, so it, it, it's a compliment to say I'm a tabloid journalist. All right. So it's okay to call it that. Yeah, because I, I uh, always think of you when I watch The Thin Man with William Powell and Myrna Loy, and, and he's uh, he's talking to his wife about <clears throat> getting shot by the bad guys, and she says, um, uh, the New York Times says you were shot three times. Um, you were shot five times in the tabloids, and he says to her, they never came anywhere near my tabloids. So. <laughs> That's when I, I think never, of. I never. It's been a while. I never heard. I never heard that line. That's, that's there you go. Well, <laughs> you've got to live in my world. Um, there you go. Claire Carlson is is a uh, like a like a combination news director and working journalist for a local TV news station in New York City, and yeah. um, in this one, she starts out with a story about a prominent private investigator who's just been killed in kind of a high-profile way, right? Right. I mean, just first about Claire, she's technically the news director, but, um, you know, as you would probably know, being in the in the media business, uh, the life of a news director wouldn't be terribly interesting in a book. And um, once I decided to do a series of it, uh, she's a news director that goes out and, you right. know, uh, and, and covers stories. Um, and this, yeah, this particular story involves the whole idea of, private eyes and private investigators and it's a woman private investigator who spy on people to see if they're cheating on their spouses and um, you know which i discovered is a kind of a big business you can hire a private eye to follow your wife or your husband and and see if they're cheating and you know if you've ever seen like the show cheaters on tv right and i was fascinated by this and then i thought to myself well that's a real good motive for murder isn't it and uh, of course, my character, the woman who's not, not Claire, but the woman who's doing it, is murdered at the beginning of the book. And then you begin to find out that maybe she wasn't murdered because of sex secrets. That there's mm-hmm. a lot of other things she might have uncovered. What was the genesis for? I mean, did, did you did you find an actual PI that did this kind of work, or what was the genesis for no, this plot? I I uh, I. Uh, I, I, I hate to admit this, uh, Jack, but I, I try and do very little research on my books because, you know, I, I did so much research as a journalist. And, you know, it's like, I don't want to do it. I just want to write the books. Uh, I read an article, you know, in the New York Post, actually, about a about a woman who did this for a living. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I came up with like a slogan for her, we catch men with their pants down. And uh, and that became the premise of the book. But no, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I have no real life experience <laughs> with this kind of yeah. person. Uh, I just, I made it, uh, you know, I kind of made it all up. It, your books, and we've talked about this before, your plots always incorporate, besides the sort of standard, um, you know, plot twists that we would find in any murder mystery, you're, you're always addressing what's happening in the media world. Uh, and a big part of, of what happens with Claire as she goes through the, the day, she has to satisfy her newsroom boss, the people that own the station. You know, there's, there's like a lot of masters to serve. And, um, you look at what's happening in the media world today. It's, it's, it's consolidation. It's fewer and fewer people controlling more and more outlets. Um, and I, I get the feeling from reading you that that isn't coincidental in your books. Like that's, that's, that's a concern 
you have as well as Claire has. Yeah, Claire Claire's very much, uh, I mean, she's younger than me, but she's very much old guard in that she thinks the journalism is the most important thing and breaking yeah. the story is more important than anything else. And uh, in this book, like some of the others, but even more in this book, I think, uh, she's actually told by the new owners of the station, like, well, we don't care about exclusives. We don't care about the news. We just care about, you know, the numbers, the ad numbers. And, uh, you know, it's, it's so I, yeah, I deal a lot. I, I deal a lot with, uh, with that in, in the book. And in this book, for people who have read some of the other ones, she gets, an, you know, she has a new boss now who's terrible. She has a new owner coming in who's terrible. And uh, this just, you know, at the same time, she's trying to break the big story. And, and her, her response to all this is, well, if I, if I break the big story, everything else will be fine. Uh, but there's all this going on around her, too. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully that makes, makes the book more interesting. We're talking with Archie Belsky. The new novel uh, from him is Broadcast Blues. It's in the Claire Carlson uh, series of books. I know I've asked you this before, but um, how do you go about writing a story whose main character um, is a woman when you're not? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, I don't really, haven't really thought all this out tremendously, but when I first started writing, I wrote a traditional male reporter, as was many years ago, a male character, and a right. woman editor read it and said to me, wouldn't it be more interesting if she was a woman? And I did. And I don't really know how to write in the third person very well, so I write it I write in the first person. So I'm writing a woman in the in the first person. And I've done, I've actually published now uh, over a period of years, 20, 20, this is the 21st book I've had published. And I wow, think about congratulations. 15 of them, yeah, about 14 or 15 of them uh, involve female characters. I, I just find, you know, I mean, obviously I find, you know, women, you know, fascinating and interesting. I've worked with a lot of terrific women who have to overcome sometimes more challenges in the media world and the business world than a man does. And uh, I just find as a writer, it's more fun to write the woman character uh, than the man. I mean, it's not some well thought out thing. That's just instinctually, mm. uh, instinctually what I what I do. Um, and you know, but do you have you know, to? Do you have to kind of maybe get like a little? Do, do you ever feel like you're in unfamiliar territory, or do you have yeah. people that kind yeah, of give yeah. you the the skinny on whether or not you've depicted yeah. something in a realistic way, or because right, I think she's right, very believable. Well, yeah, and Port, you know, what I've been really happy is a lot of women have said that to me. You know, they've said, you know, you know, you really, you know, get it, like, and which is great. Um, I have a woman agent. I have a woman, I have a woman editor. Um, and, yes, there are times they'll say, and it is sometimes blatant, they'll just say, well, you know, women really say that or do that. And I always, uh, I always listen to them. The only political thing I was a little concerned out of, this is not in this book, but it was, I think, two books ago, um, I, I did a thing which focused on the Me Too movement a bit and, mm-hmm. um, you know, Claire, Claire trying to prove some woman, uh, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, sexual uh, allegations that she was making and then realizing that they weren't true. And that, that was just, totally, and, you know, but I was very careful to make sure that, you know, everybody agreed like, yeah, this is okay to do. But, yeah, I'm aware that I'm a man doing it. And, you know, thus far, like I said, I, I think probably I've had more women who are fans of Claire than men because, they, you know, they're like, oh, I like Claire. I want to be like Claire kind of thing, which is great. There's also a character in this book, um, again, not giving anything away, but uh-huh. um, while she's covering this case, Parallel to it is the rise of this local politician running for governor, right, Ortiz? Right, 
Right. Was right. he inspired by, based on, did you have anybody? Because I thought of somebody who I thought maybe maybe he was thinking of this guy a little bit with the development of this character. Was he based on anybody? N- not really. The, the, the one that was sort of based on a and some people is the other one of the other main characters in the book is a super billionaire. I mean, like, you know, you know, Elton Musk type rich, you know, uh, uh, Bezos, you know, like 50 billion dollars. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. He, as you know, from reading it, you know, he plays a, a big role in the book, too. Right. He's, he's not a not a good guy. And you know that right from the very beginning. And, you know, that character was sort of based on a lot of stuff you read in the news about very rich people doing things that aren't, you know, great or taking advantage of, of that. And so I, when I read all that, I was like, okay, I want to do a character like that who's super rich and arrogant and mm-hmm. cheats on his wife. And that's the premise, how the character, how it starts, which is that he's cheating on his wife and, you know, he's worth like $50 billion. Um, but uh, no, the, you know, the political, I, you, you, I don't think I did. You know, I, I think it was just a combination of, I mean, there's certainly a lot of colorful uh, political characters here in New York uh, that I could have drawn on, but uh, that's, uh, that's no one, uh, no one specific. What is the, I mean, how, do you see Claire just going on or do you have an arc for her or what, what's the future of Claire? <laughs> well, my uh, my arc for her, as long as the publisher wants to publish, I'll do it. You know, I'm one of those people. I've never understood people are kind of like, oh, you know, like with a TV show, you know, oh, we'll do it five years and then we'll step down on top. You know, I'm like, you know, just, I'll just keep doing it as long as somebody wants to have me do it. I love writing right. the Claire books. They're, they're really fun to write. Uh, I re- I've got a, a series of other thrillers coming out uh, next year, which don't involve Claire, and they're fun too, but the Claire character is my favorite. And uh, and as you as you point out, like a lot of the Claire books, they're not just about the story. They're about her. They're about her romantic life. They're about her trying to deal with the, the, all the problems. Um, and for people that haven't, you know, the one one or two sentence description of Claire is she's a terrific journalist, the best. She is a like a disaster, as, you know, in her personal life. It's like a train right. wreck. You know, everything goes wrong. And that's fun to write about, you know. Um, so I, I like doing them. As long as people keep buying them and publisher wants to publish them, this is number six. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm 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 happy to do them. I mean, look at you know Michael Conley's up to what about forty and Harry Bosch. So there you go. Yeah. Why not? There you go. <laughs> I, well, and I will say I do I do like her. She grew on me. I had started out with you on your other series that had a male uh, character. Malloy. Malloy. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I wasn't sure I was going to like Claire um, or be able to get into them, but but yeah, she's. Just the way she eats, I, I, I like. I want to hang with her because <laughs> wherever there's food, she's eating like the most unhealthy well, thing that, that there is. Incredible. I love that. A lot of that is so. When when uh, when you're saying that, uh, Jack, that means if uh, we ever got together in San Antonio, you'd like to hang with me too, because I like a lot of this. Okay, good. Claire does. Yeah, and good. I'm no, I like that. I like the Claire. Somehow she looks good on TV, yet she eats. 7,000 calories a day. So we, we love that about her. The new yeah, one is I called... Into the, I haven't gotten into the diet thing. To, to yeah, don't. I've made a couple don't. references to it. Yeah, yeah, we don't want to, yeah, we don't want that. No one wants to... No, no one wants to read a mystery novel about a diet. Um, it's, broadcast it's Blues, R.G. Belsky it's is... Fun, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's a fun... She'd be a fun hang, absolutely. Broadcast absolutely. Blues is the new one. And R.G., it's, I'm, I'm just so glad you're you're continuing these and continuing to come back with us and... And as I always oh, I say, it, just Jack. wish you the best it. of luck. And 
and I, I think it's great that you're you, you're so involved in promoting you know books, not just mine, but others too. So it's it's great, great talking to you, and hopefully I'll talk to you again soon on another book. Will do. Well, always let us know what you're up to, and Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you and yours. Thanks, R.G. Belsky. You should read these books. You should read them in order if you can. The Claire Carlson series. The new one is Broadcast Blues. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas Everywhere you go Take a look at the five and ten It's glistening once again With candy canes and silver lanes that glow That, uh, that reminds me I need to get over like to the five and ten <laughs> Off to time travel, right? Tomorrow night, uh, in our six o'clock hour, our annual event. You're getting, you're getting fair warning. It's not going to sneak up on you. I'm letting you know. Worst Christmas song of all time. It happens here tomorrow night. Not this one. No, it's, and, and don't try to guess what it is. I have people get, if you haven't heard it, you haven't heard it. It's not like you, you can hear it on, you know, Q101 or so. It, it, nobody plays it. It's And there's a reason, and you'll see why tomorrow night. Okay, um, I'm a sports fan. I, I think you know that if you listen to the show at all. Uh, I mostly watch college football and basketball, a smattering of Major League Baseball, a lot of sports I don't really watch. Watch a little bit of the NFL. Richard Mendenhall was the running back for the Pittsburgh Steelers back in the day. And he's got a complaint about, I guess you could say, sports broadcasting. He says that he's had it with NFL analysts who are average white guys. He um, seems to have been touched off by a lot of criticism recently of a good friend of his, Steelers head coach Mike Tomlin. Tomlin is, is on the hot seat. He uh, is getting a lot of heat for the the disappointing run the Steelers are having. But anyway, Mendenhall says, quote, I'm sick of average white guys commenting on football. Y'all not even good at football. We should replace the Pro Bowl with an all-black versus all-white bowl so these cats can stop trying to teach me who's good at football. I'm better than your GOAT. Greatest of all time. So he's um, saying a few things here. We First of all, i, I got to say, with all due respect to this gentleman, I hear a lot of commentators who are black also taking Mike Tomlin to task. Like, And, and I don't have anything against Mike Tomlin, but the Steelers are a disappointment, long-term, underperforming franchise, and Tomlin is their head coach. And deserves to be held accountable. If you if you don't like what's going on with them, then he gets the blame. Race has nothing to do with it. Um, but getting back to this idea, is it? I guess I would ask Richard Mendenhall: Is it a problem with like? Are you bothered by commentators or pundits in general who were not good at playing football or were kind of Metza Metza in their playing days, or is it that they're white? Because 
and I don't know if this is a rule or not, but it almost seems like, have you noticed with sports commentators, a lot of times the best, like, analysts, pundits, you know, the 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 color commentator that partners up with the play-by-play guy, a lot of times the best ones were not really very successful as players, but they're knowledgeable and they're well-spoken. And maybe they had, like, a good college career, but they never caught on in the pros. I'm thinking of, like, Greg McElroy or, I don't know, uh, RG3, you know. I mean, RG3 is fantastic, but he was a flop in the NFL. I mean, it didn't it didn't happen for him in the NFL. And he got hurt, and you know. But just because he wasn't a great NFL player doesn't mean he isn't a great NFL analyst. He is, I think. I mean, sometimes you get both. Sometimes you get guys that were legendary on the field and then turn out to be great in the booth or at the desk. You know, Tony Romo. Uh, I'm, I'm blanking on other names, but there's, there's guys like that. Other times, the best guy in the booth is a guy that was a footnote or a, you know, an afterthought on the roster. So is that the problem, or is he just not like cool with white commentators in general. And then this idea about, well, maybe the competition should be white players versus black players. I, I, I mean, I part of me kind of wants to see that. I, part of me also thinks that would probably be a slaughter, but part of me kind of wants to see that. But, but it seems like a weird take on the problem. Like, what would that prove if 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 you if you put player uh, teams rather that were racially segregated on the field, okay? And he's presuming that the all black team would wipe out the all white team, and in football that's probably true. They probably would. What, what does that mean about the the commentators and the guys in the studio doing the? Half game, the, the halftime show, and all that. I mean, what, what, does, what does that mean? What does that tell us? I don't think there's any connection between being great on the field and being great at the microphone. There's too many examples where that didn't happen, and there's too many examples of the opposite, I think. What do you think? 210 599 5555. I mean, there's, there's kind of an unwritten rule I know, like in many major league sports that usually the best coaches were not the best players. And I've heard people explain that a lot of different ways, like maybe maybe guys that rode the bench a lot um, became students of the game, or maybe it's that they're more cerebral or um, unless, you know, athletically gifted. Uh, but you think about, like, think about, like, all the baseball managers that were, like, very marginal players but are really good managers, you know. And um, I, I, I think it kind of applies in sports. Like sports commentators, what makes them good is not that they played well, but that they observed, they studied, they know the not only the X's and O's, but like they can bring it home to you and me. They can make us feel like we understand the locker room or why are the Cowboys the way they are or what's going on with Belichick and the Patriots or, you know, whatever it might be. And to me, your ability to do that just has nothing to do 
with your athletic gifts or achievements, but... Coming up, results of the JR poll and something called menu anxiety. Do you suffer from menu anxiety? Four out of five doctors. No. Um, I don't know too much about uh, Richard Mendenhall, but he seems like he's kind of an unhappy guy. And I feel a little sorry for him. Maybe he's bitter. Maybe he's maybe he's uh, feeling very defensive about his pal Mike Tomlin. But, yeah, I don't. I don't think what we need in this world of ours is more racial segregation. Like any idea that starts with let's divide the whites and the blacks or let's pit the whites and the blacks against each other, right away you lose me. I just don't, other than you could make the argument, well, it'd be interesting to see what would happen. I, I That is not an appealing notion to me. And maybe it's just like maybe my age because we, you and I are the product Right, if you're in your, you know, middle-aged years, that's as far as we have to go with that, I think. If you're around my age, we are the product of the greatest, most noble experiment in racial harmony that there probably has ever been. We were brought up with the whole... You know, content of character, not color of skin. See past the color. Be color blind. We, we, we believed color blind was not a an affliction, but a uh, an aspiration. We, you know, ebony, ebony and ivory. <laughs> I mean, we just that was our that was how we were raised, and that's the culture, right, that we grew up in, and we thought that that would just keep building on itself and progressing and maybe it wasn't going as fast as it should or maybe there were setbacks, but but we thought the, the direction of society was unity, at least on race. Well, no, we've, we've thrown that out the window and young people today are much more aware of and... Uh, mindful of their own race and race and it's it's kind of weird to see it's one of those things where when you want like if you're I'm, I'm 58 i mean when you watch your kids or your grandkids they are conscious of and um oriented toward stuff that we were supposed to like not think about or notice anyway so when I hear this stuff, I don't, I don't like it. I don't respond well to it. But I was intrigued by his sort of the other idea he had or the other complaint that he had, which was that like not very good athletes get to go in the booth or get to go in the studio and become the, the analysts and the commentators. And I don't know. I, I think it's just um, it's an intangible. There are just people that were really not great on the field or on the court, and somehow they're great in front of the camera. And sometimes 
sometimes you get both. I mean, like I watch a lot of college basketball, and some of some of the really great former players and coaches are now terrific commentators and analysts and stuff. But also sometimes it's just people that were very marginal. Just kind of works out that way, you know. Like I'm curious. Have you ever thought about what Tom Brady will be like when and if he ever? Because he's got some kind of standing offer. Like whenever he's ready, Fox is going to put him on their primary NFL game of the week telecast. It's just his for the asking whenever he wants it. They're throwing money at him. He hasn't done it yet. I actually don't know that he'll be great at that. Smart guy, great football IQ, good-looking guy. I've heard him talk about football. I've heard his podcast. You know, to be honest, when Tom Brady talks about football, it's a lot less interesting than when Tom Brady played football. It's like a hard act to follow. Like, you you want him to be as electrifying verbally as he was playing, and he's not. He's okay, but not. He won't be the he won't he won't be the greatest color commentator of all time. <laughs> Nobody will say that when the day comes. I don't I don't think. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. I read about. Um, God, we seem to be talking a lot about Gen Z. I don't mean to pick on them, but you're getting a lot of coverage, Gen Z. I'm sorry, you're in the news. New survey says that sixty seven percent of people have menu anxiety. When ordering at a restaurant, including 86% of Generation Zers, menu anxiety means that you feel overwhelmed by the choices on the menu, and then you immediately regret an order upon placing it. I have to admit, I, I've seen this in action. I've seen, I've been with people who freeze. Have you ever been with somebody that just froze? Like, it's, it's the worst place is the drive-thru. Have you ever had somebody in the car and you're at the drive-thru? And the drive-thru's, I mean, that's time limited. You gotta, you gotta go. This car is coming behind us and they freeze. Uh, in, in restaurants, maybe it's not as bad. You can say to the server, we need another minute. So you've said that like the third time. Anyway, it's apparently a real thing. I don't, I don't have it, um, but menu anxiety is being exacerbated, say the experts, by two things. Menus are getting bigger, and prices are getting higher. So there's more choices, more pages, and then there's the fact that the minute you order it, you've ordered a, an expensive meal. Young people say another thing that adds to their anxiety is not being able to pronounce the options on the menu when ordering. You're intimidated by, like, I guess, Italian dish names or things like that. I don't know. I kind of feel like if this is our biggest problem, <laughs> you know, I don't mean to be cruel, but this seems like kind of a first-world problem, you know? Oh, there's so much to eat, I can't decide what to eat. Doesn't seem like I'm not feeling a ton of sympathy there, you know? Maybe a little, but not. A, you need to just... Here's what I do, and I don't know if this is good advice or not, but I'll just throw it out there. If I'm having a little trouble deciding, 
which I really don't, but if I am, I just think to myself, well, this is not the last meal I'm ever going to eat. And if it doesn't turn out great or it isn't super, you know, satisfying, I, there'll, there'll be another time. I'll just be eating later, right? Uh, it doesn't have to be perfect, you know, just, just go with something. Maybe, I don't know, maybe just kind of like the first thing that looks good to you. You know, when you open up that menu, if you're already on page like four and something kind of jumps, just go with that. It's not the last meal you're ever going to have. Probably not the last meal you're going to have. I mean, someday it will be, but probably not today. there wrap up our time together but you know um, with modern technology our our time together really never has to be over because we have full episode podcasts now available you can listen on demand I wouldn't say binge listen I I can't fathom that anyone would, would do that I wouldn't do that I'm the host but you could listen to, like, catch up on the shows on the weekend or listen at night or whatever works for you or share the share the show with someone that doesn't get to hear it live. We're here live Monday through Friday from 4 to 7 on KTSA. And again, full demand, full uh, episode on-demand podcasts, KTSA.com, or look for The Jack Riccardi Show wherever you like to get your other podcasts. We asked you on the JR poll, are we going to see the draft return uh, 73% said no, 27% said yes. We'll have a new poll question powered by River City Oral Surgery tomorrow on the show. Yeah, we were talking about menu anxiety, and uh, I was thinking that really with, now that you can preview a menu, like if you're on your way to a restaurant or you're in the drive through line, like w- wouldn't you be looking at the menu on your phone and like you'd kind of work through the, choices or narrowing it down like i i could see this being a problem before we had that but now that we have that it seems like a weird thing to be so widespread 86 percent of generation z 67 percent of people say they are overwhelmed by the choices on menus hmm Maybe so, it's like all choices, though, Don. Like, maybe it's not just menus. Maybe I it's just, like everything is a hard I was, choice. I was about to jump in and say that. It's obvious that uh, maybe the pro- real problem is is that they just have a tough time making a decision yeah. all the way around as far as, you yeah. know, should I buy a house? Should I buy a car? Should I go out with well, you my know, friends? We could, go back, we could go back to the old, old, old days where, like, if a man and a woman went to dinner, he ordered for her. Well, there's a concept. Yeah. Why don't you try that? Let us know how that... Um, yeah, I don't think it's going to... I think those days are over. If you are still alive the next day, you could tell us how that went for you. I don't but, think it's going to uh, yeah, go No, I don't. That's probably not the answer. Yeah, probably not. Anyway, um, Just sit there and I wanted to mention, uh, do you think people are ready for... Speaking of choices, are people ready for tomorrow night? I don't know. I don't know if you can be ready. If you've never heard the worst Christmas song 
of all time, and you think you know what it is. So you're, people are guessing. I'm getting guesses. You're all wrong. Everyone's wrong. It's not what you think it is. It's not. It's not grandma got run over by a reindeer. It's not the barking dogs. It's not. Just, just trust me when I tell you. You won't. You probably won't have heard it before unless you heard us play it before. When you hear it, you will know that's not hype. You will appreciate why we take an hour to build up to it. You will understand why we only play it once a year. And that's tomorrow night in our 6 o'clock hour. Yes, the news is breaking about the worst Christmas song of all time. You'll never, and you'll never ride the number five bus again. That's for sure. See you back here live at 4 tomorrow.